It's me, Bobby Brown. Hey, what's up? I'm Kelly Rowland. Hi, this is Chelsea Clinton, and you're listening to me on That Total Mom Event. Hi, everyone. I am now featuring a live event that I did at the Asia Society for the Asian American Pacific Islander Heritage Month. I was invited by Neelam Chaudhary of the Asia Society and Anu Segal of the Culture Tree to moderate this event. It was the South Asian Trailblazers. We had Anu Ayanger, who is the co-head of Global Mergers and Acquisitions at J.P. Morgan Chase & Co., Snigda Sur, who is the CEO and founder of The Juggernaut, Dr. Sue Varma, board-certified psychiatrist and professor at NYU Langone Health, and Jennifer Rajkumar, our New York State Assemblywoman. Listen in to the live panel. Thank you. How's everyone doing this evening? Wonderful. Um, just to get a lay of the land, um, because we have so many distinguished panelists with us today that represent an array of industries, how many of you are in finance? Show of hands. Excellent. And let's see, media, medicine, health and wellness. Okay. Politics and entrepreneurship. <laughs> you, you two can talk offline. <laughs> That's great. Thank you so much for joining us today. Um, happy Api Heritage Month to all of you. I'm honored to be moderating this panel with the South Asian women um, trailblazers you see today. Each and every one of the panelists here has made monumental change in their industries and they're pioneers in their fields. And they've had a huge impact on our community. Um, first, I'm pleased to introduce Anu Ayengar. She is someone we all know on, and are immensely proud of for representing us in finance and on the world stage. She's the global co-head of mergers and acquisitions at J.P. Morgan Chase & Co. She's been honored on Barron's 100 Most Influential Women in U.S. Finance list and was recognized by American bankers as one of the most powerful women in finance. Anu Ayengar. We also have Assembly Member Jennifer Rajkumar. She is a lawyer, professor, and government leader who made history as the first South Asian American woman ever to be elected to a state office in New York. She has passed landmark legislation protecting domestic workers, creating New York State's first OPI commission, and expanding support for victims of crime. Welcome Assemblywoman Jennifer Rajkumar. Next, we have Snigda Sur. She is the founder and CEO of The Juggernaut, a Y Combinator and Precursor Ventures-backed media company telling smart South Asian news, entertainment, and human interest stories that were left untold. She's fluent in Hindi and Bengali and sometimes <laughs> can slip into Mandarin. No. <laughs> um, my kids are learning too. Welcome, Snigda Sur. Okay, and last but not least, we have Dr. Sue Varma. She is a board-certified psychiatrist and clinical assistant professor of psychiatry at NYU, uh, Langone Health. Dr. Varma is considered the nation's leading go-to psychiatrist and mental health expert, often called in for breaking news, and she's been featured on NBC, ABC, CBS, and Dr. Oz. Welcome, Dr. Sue Varma. Okay, I'm going to ask the first question from the podium, and then I'll 
take a seat. Um, so as we celebrate um, AAPI Heritage Month, I'd like to ask you to share a few words about your mission and how your culture and heritage has shaped who you are professionally and personally. So starting with Anu, if you can share a few words about that. What the month means to me? or how Yes, and how, um, how your culture and heritage has kind of shaped um, you on a professional level and a personal level. Yeah, I'd say professional level has changed over time. The original part of the career, probably hiding it. Yeah, and yeah. the latter part of the career uh, being more accepting and ev evolving into being more authentic. That's probably what I'd say. And that's why uh, I'm here, <laughs> to, uh, to help, uh, I think, other people navigate it in a way that is maybe better than what I did. Um, because it and to be more more comfortable and play to your strengths as opposed to um, looking at the weakness side of it because a lot of lot of the inherent parts of the culture uh, in terms of how I grew up because I grew up in India are the antithesis to the behavior that you need to exhibit in the world that I work in uh, and so I think uh, overcoming that dichotomy and figuring out my own voice and figuring out how to be authentic in a world which uh, where there's a lot, of, a lot of people who are like you had to be a journey that I had to go through. We're thankful you did that. Jennifer, I'll take a Same question. So my identity is identity of many people in this room, and it certainly has defined my journey. So probably like many of you, like your families, my parents came here with just $300 in a suitcase settled in New York, where I was born and raised. And coming from India, my mom was always very proud of coming from the world's largest democracy. So growing up, she would always say, this is a democratic household. <laughs> so what that meant was whenever we had a fight in the house, we would solve it through the family court system. <laughs> we would all gather in the kitchen. One person would be a judge. One person would be a lawyer for one side. One person would be a lawyer for the other side. And we'd argue it out. And that's how I grew up. And no I wonder you became a lawyer. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I considered this normal. And then years later, I became a lawyer. And my mom still wonders why. <laughs> but this dedication to democracy and justice uh, runs in my family. It's how I was raised. And so I became a civil rights attorney. And I dedicated myself to helping women and workers, people who are excluded in large class action cases. And my first case out of law school was on behalf of women who were experiencing pregnancy discrimination. So when they got pregnant, they got fired or demoted. It's illegal, but it still happens all the time. And it ended up being the largest class action case ever in U.S. history. It was an incredible first case to work on and to win. Uh, but then I realized that if you really want to make a difference, you need power. So I did a total 180 and I went into politics. I worked for the governor of New York and directed immigration for New York State, making sure that every immigrant who couldn't afford a lawyer got a lawyer, and that nobody was alone and isolated in this country. Um, and then I ran for office. I ran against an 11-year incumbent. And people told me, Jennifer, you're a nice girl, but you got no shot. <laughs> but we won. And not only did we win, we won by the largest margin of any challenger in the state. And I have to say that when it comes to identity, it really was my Indian values 
that guided me throughout. My dad would always tell me that if you want to succeed, you have to be like Arjuna in the Mahabharata. <laughs> so there were five Pandav brothers and they all had to shoot a bird. But only one of the brothers could shoot the bird. And that was Arjuna. And when they asked Arjuna why, he said, I saw only the eye of the bird. So to this day, my dad will always tell me, focus on the eye. And we both know what that means. But it was really these, these values and the values of our, all of our families, working hard, coming here with little, and just working hard and doing well. Those were the same values I implemented. And finally, I will say that it's my third year in office now, and I've begun to think about what will my legacy be. And what I want it to be is that when there's another South Asian woman, one day there'll be another South Asian woman trying to run for office or sitting here, and I want her to say, I can be great. Because I know Jennifer Rajkumar did something, and I know because she did it that I can do it and I can be great. And then I will have left a legacy. Brilliant. So in terms of my personal life, I will say that I don't know how many of you are children, but or like came to America when you were children, but are actually not born in America. Anyone? Yeah, that's me. It's really funny because I have a lot of trolls on the internet, and they love to call me ABCD, which is American-born, confused Daisy. But I'm not American-born, so um, which is hilarious to me. Um, but in terms of my personal values and beliefs and how I was raised personally, I also come from a partition family. So my ancestors were originally from what is now. What is now Bangladesh, but then they left. I also had a grandpa who worked in Burma during the Pacific, during World War II in the Pacific Theater. And growing up, I always heard all these incredible stories from both sides of my family, which was just a lot of loss, frankly, which is like constantly losing everything, leaving one place, going to a new place, then getting everything stolen. And all they had with them really was their education. They said that's the one thing that no one can take away from us. Um, and Growing up, I also had a huge love for Bollywood because my parents, one of the practices that they brought with them was that every weekend they would just go to the theaters. And that was one of their forms of escapism, right? That's all they had. That's all the pocket money they had. And they would just go buy tickets. My dad told me that he was one of four brothers. They were hilarious. They would buy only two tickets. So two brothers would go. Then it would be interval, and then they'd come back, and the other two brothers would go. <laughs> and then uh, they'd have dinner that night, and they'd exchange notes. <laughs> and that's how much they loved the movies, because that way they could see double the movies. You know, that's, they were ridiculous like that. And I think growing up with that, um, you know, watching Bollywood movies every weekend, growing up with all these stories, definitely watched the Mahabharata and Ramayan with my parents, but also watched Hollywood. I think I was just seeped in just media. I, that's what I ended up doing. I ended up reading a lot of books. I would take up 25 books at a time from the Queen's Library. Thank you, Queen's Library. Libraries are important. Please support them. And then as I grew older, you know, I would, I would tell my mom, I'm going to be a novelist when I grow up. And she's like, I don't think you're going to make any money. And like, I would like say all these things. And I think I ultimately, my path professionally was that I did the thing that was the thing I could afford to do. So I was a McKinsey consultant for two years. Uh, I did that in New York City. And I ended up saving a little bit of money, moving to Bombay, living there for a year, and following my dream there, which was doing everything from Bollywood film production to working in venture capital. Um, I then went off to business school for a couple of years, helped one of my bosses, Sarah Hardin, invest in Reese Witherspoon. And that's when I realized, well, if Reese Witherspoon can raise that much money to focus on stories for strong, often white women, why can't I raise money to tell stories of South Asians? Because growing up, we didn't have these in our textbooks. We didn't see them in middle school. I'd hear... Like, I'd read about Sati in 
like my AP whatever government class, and then I go home. And I'm like, Mom, what is what is Suffy? And she's like, Why are you guys learning about Suffy? Like we've moved on. We're talking about all these other things. And so I think that that was really important to me when I started the Juggernaut, which is there's a whole group of us, so many of us who grew up with so many more stories and what we read in our textbooks and what we read in the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal. And it's time to center our community too. And if no one else is going to do it, we should, right? And so that's a little bit about what the juggernaut is about and how I got there. Great. So thank you so much to Asia Society for having me and Ernie Sagal with Culture 3. It's, it's a real honor, honor and pleasure and hearing about your stories. Um, and I certainly can identify with themes of everything from loss and grief to finding meaning and creating purpose and bringing our culture and then how do we express it in terms of who we are with our own personalities? And, um, you know, to share a little bit about myself, my father is a child psychiatrist. Um, he was one of the first child psychiatrists in northern India in 1960s. He had um, finished his education in the United States, went back, had heard about a school that a woman was starting. Um, and this woman had started this school in her house at age of 16. She had graduated college at 13, had done four bachelor's degrees by 18, and he's like, she sounds incredible. I need to meet her. And this woman turns out to be my mother. Um, <laughs> she started the school that was um, turned into uh, from her living room to a thousand students in New Delhi um, over to large properties. And it was to mainstream um, children who have intellectual disabilities or hardship um, into regular classrooms. And that was something that wasn't happening with kids who had disabilities were ostracized, stigmatized, shunned, you know, sent away. So together, they really created this, you know, thousand person school that was all about mental health and including uh, education and uh, advocacy. And so much of what I grew up with was this idea about seva and giving back to the community. And, um, you know, it was sort of a marriage of two people. My mom went on to get four masters and Ph.D. And she said she had sworn she was never going to get married. She was 29, practically a spinster in those days for an Indian woman. But she wanted to dedicate her life to community. And then she said, I saw your dad and he wasn't on a white horse, but he was in a white Chevy and I fell in love with him. <laughs> and I was like, there you go, the Chevy, you know? And she's like, and my dad's like, but I was the only person who had a car and it was imported. And I, the, the funny things our parents do. So, um, you know, we came back, my, I was born in the United States. Um, my parents had moved here and they continued their work in advocacy and education. And my mother worked for the Board of Ed and was fighting to have immigrants um, kid tested in their own language, so Hindi, Gujarati, whatever it might be, so that they wouldn't be left behind. But in the evenings, her passion was teaching Hindi and Sanskrit. And so we were doing a lot of plays. She would write them about all aspects of, you know, India's freedom struggle, Buddhism, you name it. So learning the language was a big uh, part for us that, you know, one of her thesis was on bilingual education and the importance of learning about your culture and your identity. Um, so I think and, and how it informs our self-esteem and having that. Uh, so I, I want to say that a lot of who I am today, of whether it's education, I, teaching at NYU, whether it's seeing patients, whether it's advocating for underserved needs of, you know, South Asian women in the community, a lot of it stems from my parents' early values. And then one thing that I learned, which the culture didn't teach us, is this idea of where do we fit in as individuals? Because so much of what I was raised with was so, community first, family next, and the individual almost didn't exist. And, you know, it's interesting because medicine and the grueling training that we go through 100 hours a week, no sleeping, 36-hour shifts, really did, you know, 
feed, marry well with my Indian subservient, obedient, you know, daughter <laughs> personality. But as time went on, I realized that we have to prioritize our mental health and mental wellness. And what we're not, we're not saying me first, we're saying me too. And that we deserve a seat at the table and to prioritize our, our wellness um, and, and to make that a priority. So I'm excited to be here and continue the conversation with you all. Um, one thing that sticks out to me is how exemplary all of your parents were in kind of teaching um, you know, these uh, traditions, whether it's drawing from Mahabharat or um, creating a democracy at home and having you advocate or arbitrate <laughs> with for your siblings. <laughs> you know, it's, it's so important that they, um, that they realize the value in that and how they created the legacy that you are carrying forth. It's really, really wonderful. Um, okay, on to Anu. So we're going to go into um, perspectives and kind of their, their unique um, journeys and how it's informed the decisions that they've make, made in their careers. So through your experience, Anu, um, could you share how South Asian women can best position themselves when they take on leadership roles, um, specifically in, in finance or industries that might be predominantly male-dominated? Yeah, so I think anywhere where there's money and power is where you see uh, patriarchy uh, more obviously, right? So a lot of organizations, I think, will talk about 50% of their employees being women. Um, yeah. But then when you look at where the women are, it's often in support uh, functions. Not that there's anything wrong with being in support functions, but it's a question of what what are you measuring, uh, and so I think when, if you are after uh, something that is defined as power or money or influence or whatever it is, politics, I'd say the same, right? Anywhere where you have impact at a broad level or you're the person who's making decisions on which films get made and what don't, that's all power and influence. So I don't think it's just finance. I think anywhere where there is power and influence. <laughs> yes, very true. I, uh, I think it's the same, right? Because you are working in an environment where the majority of the people who are in that space are uh, men. And uh, so the definition of leadership is, uh, uh, is, is through the male definition, right? So a lot of people will talk about commanding presence. Commanding presence naturally equates with height. <laughs> and on average, women are, you know, on average, women are shorter than men. Right. And so immediately, like you just lost one big thing about commanding a room, uh, it's about uh, how loud you are or the tone of your voice. And so, again, by definition, a woman's voice is usually more shrill, usually, especially uh, all of us are told to be, you know, seen, not heard. That's kiss of death if you want to be in leadership. Yeah. Um, and so almost the very things that um, make you good in some ways is being a doer, being fastidious, making sure that everything is done right, uh, that means you should just continue being a doer. Mm -hmm. Yes. Because you're so great at it. <laughs> a student, keep doing it. Mm -hmm. Right? Whereas who defi whoever defines a leader as someone who got everything done correctly, that's not a leader. Leader is inspiring. Leader is somebody who has vision. Leader is somebody who is strategic. And how, if you just think about yourself... So that's the biggest, uh, that was my biggest aha moment, to say, how do you want to be described when you're not in the room? So that. if I'm describing Jennifer 
And I say, Jennifer is great. She wakes up every morning and she works 18 hours a day and <laughs> she gets, you know, ABC done. Um, then, yeah, sure, she should just continue doing that. But if I say Jennifer has a vision for how to change, you know, the way New York City functions and Jennifer has a vision about how to make it possible to have an inclusive community, then Jennifer is a leader. Mm-hmm. Yes. And how she spends her time should be to say, how does she want to be described? Right. And I think uh, a lot of us uh, inadvertently, because in the early part of your career, that's what you're taught. And, you, you know, on average, women are better students and better note takers and better cookie bakers and <laughs> better party organizers and all of that. You, you just can't get cast in that role. And then to break out of that and to have somebody see you differently becomes harder. So, yeah, so that's what I'd say. How do you want to be described? And does your behavior and your actions and your words match the way you want to be described? Yes. And would you say chutzpah is a big part of that, right? I mean, um, Oprah had said this one quote, if, uh, if there's no seat at the table for you, grab a folding chair. Like, make space. And I think that's something that you've definitely exhibited in your career. Um, so how, how do you kind of find um, that, that chutzpah, that, you know, I'm going to create something that doesn't exist um, and, yeah. and fill a void? I think selectively, too, right? Because in, uh, there's a thin line between assertive and aggressive. Yes. Assertive, good, aggressive, bad, unless you're a male. And so, um, so that's, that's a thin line. And, and so I'd say sometimes it is having, um, having a male ally. Uh, this morning I was, I was speaking somewhere and I said one of the most valuable things that a manager did for me was let her finish, right? Because you immediately uh, tell the room that what she's saying matters. She matters. Her views matter. And uh, I just empowered her and told the whole room to listen to her. Because otherwise, how many times, you know, somebody talks over you, you said something, they repeat it, and now suddenly everyone's like, oh, yeah, that's a great idea. <laughs> like I said it 15 minutes ago. Uh, so I think uh, the, the, the men in the room can help. So sometimes it is having somebody who, who does that let her finish uh, for you. Uh, I think being prepared and having the courage to speak um, I, that's one of my, I think, biggest pet peeves with uh, younger women nowadays is that uh, I think uh, there is an assumption that uh, I need to know more before I speak, yeah. uh, which doesn't afflict young men. Uh, and so uh, that's, uh, that's something I'd say, you know, be prepared to the meeting and also think about what am I going to say? Yes. If, because if you're in a meeting and you didn't say a single word, then it's hard to complain that, oh, well, you know, nobody took me seriously, but you didn't say anything. <laughs> it's great advice. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, Jennifer, so the 2024 election is taking shape, and we can already expect to see a historic amount of Asian American and Pacific Islander candidates. Um, and as the first South Asian American um, woman in office in New York State, um, what's your view on why we're seeing this specific uptick? It's exactly true what you're saying. There is an exponential increase in the number of Asian Americans in political leadership. And this this is truly our moment. Mm. Like if you look at the years 2016 to 2020, the number of South Asian state legislators quadrupled in the entire 
20th century, there was only one South Asian in Congress. And now there's five. And a vice president who's half South Asian. Incredible. Um, we have right now uh, Nikki Haley running for president. We also have uh, a young South Asian man who just announced to be president of the United States. So we really see our community um, is taking its seat at the table. And I love that quote that you said. It's, it's mm -hmm. Oprah quoting Shirley Chisholm. Oh, mm -hmm. Shirley Chisholm, the first black woman to ever be in the state assembly and the first black woman to ever run for president. And she said, if they don't give you a seat at the table, bring a folding chair. <laughs> right. And that's what I feel like I've done throughout my career, too. Uh, when I was running for office, there was no South Asian woman who had ever won a state office. Uh, there was no guidebook. Still, there are not as many women at the top of political leadership. So I feel like I'm kind of creating the guidebook myself uh, as I go along. And I feel like you have done that. I could hear in your inspiring words. Mm. Um, so uh, this this truly is um, our moment. And I will say that I absolutely agree that uh, South Asian women and women need to take more risks to be leaders and show their vision. Um, as you have said, I believe that they need to kind of exercise their courage muscle because courage definitely is a muscle. And the more and more you exercise that muscle, the stronger and stronger it gets. So if you take one risk, you get more used to taking risks and then you can find yourself doing bigger and bigger and riskier and riskier things because without that risk, you really can't achieve anything. Um, I will tell you that taking the risk of running for office was, was incredible. Um, and when I stepped out there, it was really just me in the middle of a grassy field with the Statue of Liberty behind me. Because I said, as the daughter of immigrants, I have to announce for the Statue of Liberty. That's just where it has to be. But there was only 15 people. And there was no press. It was just me standing on a stump saying, I'm going to do this. That's the first risk. But then as you keep going and going, suddenly 15 people becomes hundreds of people. And then there becomes press. And then you get more used to doing it. Um, so it's very important that we all uh, take risks. And nothing can stop a determined South Asian woman. Yes. <laughs> I think we all know that. We all know that. Um, but yes, it's a moment in history. And I will tell you that, you know, look at the history of South Asian Americans. We first came here in the 1800s. And in 1923, the U.S. Supreme Court actually ruled in the United States versus Bhagat Singh that Indians could not be United States citizens. Same thing was done to the Chinese community in the 1800s. Chinese Exclusion Act, where Congress ruled that Ch Chinese people could not be U.S. citizens. It all changed in 1965. Immigration laws changed, and suddenly everyone from every part of the world was welcome. And that's when so many of our families, my parents, ended up coming to this country, many of, of you, your families. Um, so now, you know, we are truly on the rise. We have been successful in so many fields, and we have been excellent. You know, like there's an, an Indian wins the spelling bee every single year. <laughs> and I'm sure several do. Yes. <laughs> and I'm sure all of you in this room, in your families, you have people that graduated at the top of, your, of their class. Yeah. I mean, we are excellent. And now it's time to bring that excellence to American politics and American government. And I think the community is understanding that because we are the culture of Gandhi. You know, Gandhi, he only he, he only had five worldly possessions. He gave it all up 
to dedicate himself to service. So I, I consider myself a true Gandhian, and I know that we have that in our culture, and, and this is our moment. Okay, Snigda, um, I am so curious to know what motivated you to start uh, the Juggernaut, um, because you are representing um, a diversity of cultures, and I feel like because you were born there and grew up here, you have a very unique lens about it. Um, something we have in common is when um, after I had done my master's in journalism, I moved to Bombay um, in my adulthood and um, worked for CNN there and covered everything from the 2611 terror attacks to Slumdog Millionaire's Oscar win. Um, and I noticed the way that news was done there, maybe it was just too much ajdak. <laughs> that I was like, it's very sensational, you know? And it didn't, there was something that just didn't resonate. Um, and you've created um, a whole new paradigm of journalism for South Asians um, in the diaspora. So what just inspired you to do it? Yeah. Um, it's a great question. By the way, Jennifer, I am one of those Spelling Bee kids. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't win the Spelling Bee. I didn't win the National Spelling Bee, but I was a New York City champion in 2001 and 2004. Wow. Wow. Um, so New York strong. Um, so cool. So in terms of um, why I started it, I think so many entrepreneurs and founders, I know there are many of you in here, even though many of you are not in media, you kind of start in a very selfish way. You kind of start because you want to solve the problem for yourself. And growing up, I think, you know, going back to South Asians being super educated, I'm going to say one additional thing to what Jennifer is saying is that actually some people think South Asians were here as early as the 1700s. I've heard stories of, I have this friend whose like, ancestors were ice merchants taking ice from Boston all the way to Bombay because the British are really dumb um, and they want their ice from America and half of it melted and obviously it's not efficient at all. Um, and, you know... And in 18, 1965, we were selected for, right? We were selected for to be educated. That's why we are excellent. But I do want to say one of the missions of the juggernaut is to point out that the diaspora experience is so diverse and it's increasingly getting diverse. And it's still not easy for us in America. The wait time, I believe, for a green card for Indians is over 150 years. How are we going to change this? We're looking to people like Jennifer to help change this and push Congress members to change this. So when I started the juggernaut, it was really because of this idea that I'm looking around here. I'm reading The Economist. I'm reading, by the way, The Economist still does not have an India section. It has a China section, not an India section. Mm. I'm reading The Economist. I'm reading The Wall Street Journal. I'm reading The New York Times. And I joke about this with my team, but I am hugely obsessed with Shah Rukh Khan. <laughs> and the amount of times I've read about Shah Rukh Khan in The New York Times or Wall Street Journal, how many times do you guys read about him? Not much. Very little. Yeah. I try to sneak in references about Shah Rukh Khan every day I get. Yeah. <laughs> every day I get on my Twitter, on my Instagram, wherever I can. Because the idea here is that Shah Rukh Khan is not just Shah Rukh Khan because Indians love him or because South Asians love him. Why is he Shah Rukh Khan? He's Shah Rukh Khan because billions of people around the world love him. Mm. He, like Hollywood just thinks it's so huge. Hollywood is not the biggest film industry. It's actually Bollywood. And people watch Bollywood in China, in Uzbekistan, in Peru, in Japan. How do I know? I've actually spoken to all the people in all of these countries who have spoken to me about Bollywood and Amitabh Bachchan and Shah Rukh Khan. And that idea of what Kanika is saying is that we in America are so self-centered, we just think the world revolves around us. But when you go to other places, when you live in other places, you realize that the global phenomenon and the global winds are very different. Mm. One other stat I want to say is that before the British arrived, <coughs> India 
owned or created 25% of the world GDP and China created 25% of the world GDP. That means the British, I think, had 0.002% or something ridiculous. They, they knew they had to steal to get bigger. Um, and so 50% of the world GDP in the 1700s are by two countries, who today are the most populous countries in the world. That means that we're just kind of history goes in cycles. We're just going back east. And the world is realizing that, too. So I think the juggernaut's just a natural conclusion, which is let's not be U.S.-centric. Let's focus on South Asians globally. Let's recognize what the diaspora is doing. Let's recognize also what's happening in the diaspora around the world. We are everywhere. We are everywhere. I think I have a subscriber in Moscow. who's like half Pakistan and half Russian. Um, and so that's my hope for us, which is that if every opportunity you have, try to delve into our own stories because there's so much there that still hasn't been told. That's great. I want to ask a follow-up. Can you share some of the headlines? Um, because I feel like you stay true to journalism and keep it very objective and even yeah. investigative. And I think that's so important because... I feel like, you know, we, we can't control what's being said in media, but so much of it is paid for. Yes. So. Oh, yes. So you cannot get a paid post of the juggernaut. I'm sorry to disappoint you. Um, That's great. Which is great. Um, we are very, we try to be, well, not we try to be, we aim to be as factual as possible in the sense that we fact check everything. Every single sentence is hopefully a fact. Um, and it riles people up sometimes. It makes people angry sometimes because we're reporting on things that, we think people should know. And despite all my love of Shah Rukh Khan, we also report factually on him too. So we don't say he's the most beautiful man on earth. <laughs> you know, he came back to cinema after four years in Patan and his film was did really well at the box office. That's unfortunately all we can say. Um, but I think it's really important to create that new paradigm because I think we as a community deserve it. We grew up on things like India Abroad and India West. And I was talking to Dr. Suvarma about this in the green room. But many of those publications were created for a different era when we didn't have much. So all we could do was celebrate the wins. But I think you know you've arrived when you as a community can both celebrate ourselves but also criticize mm. and also have a debate. Yeah. <laughs> so let's have debates. Because, you know, he, she mentioned two people running for Republicans, the Republican mm. office. I think we have a lot to say about everybody running. <laughs> as we should, yes. Um, uh, so Dr. Varma, May is Mental Health Awareness Month. Um, so what is your point of view on how mental health is addressed in our community? Very layered and nuanced question. Um, and how it's kind of addressed, um, in the stories that come out and, you know, the, the features that you do when you're called upon to, uh, speak on the news. Absolutely. So I think that we're making progress. You know, I've been talking about South Asian mental health for a long time and, you know, I, I want to say that we have to meet our community where they're at. And when I was growing up, I would go with my family to health fairs and we would, alongside people checking blood pressure, I was like 14 giving depression screenings. Mm -hmm. And people would think I'm nuts. They're like, I'm not depressed. I do my yoga every day and I go for my evening walk after I eat my dinner. What depression <laughs> are you talking about? And I realized that perhaps the language that we're using around it may not be the same. Like so much of my training in, you know, sort of Western centric ideas of what depression is, what therapy looks like, and the idea of going into therapy and then talking crap about your parents does not fly in the like South Asian community, right? Like we have, there's raised with certain values of deference and appreciation and frankly, going to therapy and talking about some of these things are very guilt invoking and producing. And, you know, I could even share from my um, training, 
you know, in residency in psychiatry, it's recommended or suggested that you go at some point. I mean, the pain, the, the program doesn't pay for it. They don't give you time. And so there were various um, factors why I resisted going into, into therapy, even though it was recommended to do at some point. But again, we were doing 36 hour shifts. I'm living in Manhattan. I'm paying hundreds of thousand dollars in loans back. So therapy seems more like a luxury, but it was also the South Asian upbringing of you don't talk badly about your parents. And I said, you know, I mostly had a good childhood. What is there to talk about? Um, and also that you don't air your dirty laundry. So certain values, I think, make it harder for a lot of people to want to look at what it is that they're dealing with, or even just the idea of how do we approach therapy. And, you know, I, my speaking of the Bhagavad Gita, you know, my father and I, he's a psychiatrist and he's done a lot of writing and transcultural psychiatry stuff over the years. But he was saying that if you look at it, you know, Arjuna on the battlefield, that is sort of the first discourse, his dialogue with Krishna, sort of first psychotherapy, you know, he's having a panic attack, right? Like yeah. my hands are shaking, right? And I dropped his, his weapons, right? And then he's talking about dharma and duty and like, who do I have a duty to? Is it my family? You know, and, you know, this, it was psychotherapy that was offered, you know, like the, the shloka that said, you know, do your duty, don't get attached to the fruits of your labor. So understanding that when you you have to meet the community where they're at and an, an article that came out and I was recently talking about it on NBC was about um, in our communities, is it going to be, let's say in the Chinese communities, Tai Chi, is it going to be yoga, um, getting help and, and bringing people to the community if they're not going to come to you. And also, I think one thing is mainstreaming the mental health conversation into the fold of medical treatment. So when you go to your primary care doctor, you know, two questions might be asked, how is your mood? Are you, have you lost interest and pleasure in the things that you once used to do? And a lot of times people are more comfortable opening up to their primary care doctor if it's seen as a medical illness. Uh, you know, a lot of times people might have more comfort taking medication um, for the medication, but they don't want to talk about it. So I think culturally, there's still a lot of stigma. We know that when South Asian people, like I've in my practice over the years, you know, treated a lot of people um, South Asians, when we when they come in, it's often very late. They don't present until things are very, very bad. And But the upside is that they get better sooner because they have a lot of family support. And, you know, growing up, my living room was literally open to our entire community, and my parents were considered people that people would turn to and would trust, whether it be domestic violence or problems in the relationship or schizophrenia. So I grew up with this sort of much more community aspect of what mental health care looks like is that we rally around people. And I know even seeing my parents, you know, I would growing up, I would go with them to the temple because there would be some great person coming and speaking and giving discourse and sermons. And it was not religious. It was philosophy. And so when I thought about the way that I was raised, so much of what I was raised with for, for me, Hinduism, just me personally, it felt more like a philosophy and a way of life, this idea of non-attachment and so much of the Eastern wisdom that came from it. And, and, you know, you can approach it in different ways, whether it's rituals or customs or looking at it as from a philosophical point of view. What I'm seeing in the younger generations now is that people are much more comfortable talking about it. So I was joking that sometimes <laughs> I'll be treating uh, a patient, you know, let's say if I have a 25-year-old South Asian woman in my practice, she'll be talking to me about her parents and grandparents and how she thinks they have symptoms of depression and anxiety. They don't want to talk to anybody. How can they get help? And sort of through them, I might say, well, you know, perhaps you can suggest this exercise video, maybe there's a Bollywood class, but really bringing the care to the community and understanding what the language is, what they're comfortable with. Is it going to be in the primary care setting? Is it going to be in a group setting, right? It might be that everyone goes for an evening walk. And what I love, and I think so much strength in our community is the fact that 
people look out for one another, right? If there's an illness in your family, if there's a death, you'll have a hundred people in your living room, you know, giving you samosas and tea and Alberto, you know, like inviting you. And so that warmth and that is there, but at the same time, the stigma still, we have a ways to go in terms of breaking it. Yes, absolutely. Um, Okay, now on to more current affairs. Um, so given um, kind of the lay of the land from um, a, f- a fiscal perspective, um, Anu, um, what do you feel next year will look like um, as far as um, debt and equity capital markets and M&A? <laughs> Very loaded, I know. I don't know whether this audience uh, is even interested in that. We had predominantly those who are in finance. Love, you want to love. raise your hands again? <laughs> Yeah. Okay. They want to know. Uh, tough, tough call. Um, so equity capital markets was, what, 90% down last year, and this year <laughs> is 90% down from that. So imagine barely anything anything happening. Um, so the expectation, I don't know, end this year, early next year, who knows, something like that for the equity, equity, equity capital markets. The good thing is there's an enormous pipeline of companies waiting to go public. Mm. The good part. Uh, the bad part is when is the window going to come for them to go public? On the debt financing side, I mean, we've had a 10-year run of, I don't know, Goldilocks uh, in terms of very low interest rates. The pace at which the Fed raised the interest rates uh, was difficult on, 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 a, on a lot of businesses because it was fast. Um, the level to which it is raised is not, uh, is not prohibitive. It's the pace the sudden change. And uh, it's questionable as to how long it'll take before you hit the 2% inflation target. So if that is a real target and you want to hit it this year, that's going to be pretty tough. But uh, it feels like it's more measured. And uh, when you had the regional banking crisis, there was a bit of an adjustment in terms of what the Fed was doing instead of 50, then it's 25. Um, so we'll see. Most of uh, street is calling for reduction on the Fed rate by the by the end of the year, uh, but time will tell. So is there, you know, a question I get most often is probability of recession in the second half of the year. There's various economic models. I think almost everything points to a recession. It's a question of how hard, soft, how long. Mm. Uh, and so that uh, level of uncertainty is, uh, is not good for M&A because M&A, people do more M&A when you're more confident. Mm. It's it's so normally you think, OK, you know, you think it's it's very similar to how you buy a house. Right. Because you may think, oh, you know, you should probably buy houses when houses are cheaper. Uh, but yet most people bought houses when the houses were the most expensive in 2020 and 21. Of course, COVID was a driver of that. When you feel confident, you feel good about your bank account. You feel good about your job. Mm. You spend money. M&A is the same. So you feel confident about your stock price. You feel confident about the world around you. You feel confident about how, how your company is doing. People are more comfortable taking risk. Um, whereas I would, uh, if I was thinking as an investor, I'd say probably today's environment is a much better investment environment than, um, than 2020, 21 was. So that's a little, little bit of what you'd see, and it's cyclical. And we've enjoyed a really good cycle for a long period of time. So I think in some ways... The corrections are timely, and uh, next year better than this year, 25 better than 24. 
That's great. That's very reassuring. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking hot compre. <laughs> that's what everyone's going through right now. Um, but yeah, no, that's that's very encouraging to, to hear. Um, we don't know how long and how bad, but you know, yeah. rest assured, we'll get through. Um, okay, to uh, Jennifer. So you were like very single-handedly responsible for um, having Diwali acknowledged as a national holiday in New York City, in New York State. Thank you. <laughs> so schools, schools have Diwali as a holiday, which is just incredible. Um, tell us a little bit about that. Well, for over 20 years, the South Asian community in New York City had been fighting for Diwali to be recognized as a holiday. But nothing ever happened. Mm. Uh, when I got elected to office as the first Indian woman, I got an opportunity to change that situation. Uh, because that's what, what happens when you have representation from your community uh, at the table of power. Um, and so uh, it, I introduced a bill in the legislature as soon as I was elected to make Diwali a holiday. But it was still considered a long shot. Um, the next year, uh, I helped Mayor Eric Adams get elected as mayor of New York City, which was an incredible journey. And as part of that, we went to Hindu temples and Buddhist temples all around this city. Uh, and to his credit, he's a mayor who's very on the ground, connecting with all different types of people. And so whenever we go to the Hindu temples, he had a chance to understand how much this meant to the community. And so when he became mayor, I said to him, how about we make Diwali a school holiday? <laughs> and he said, yes, let's do it. So we made an announcement that the whole world saw, including Priyanka Chopra. <laughs> and, and Priyanka Chopra said that she burst into tears when she saw it. But we said, we are making Diwali a school holiday. But it took more than just city law. State law also had to change the way law is structured mm. to make this happen. Um, so... Uh, when the mayor and I made this announcement, um, suddenly Diwali became seen as an American holiday. And I'm very proud of that. Um, and Diwali became enormously popular. Everywhere, yeah. I, everywhere I would go, people, Christian, Jewish, all communities saying they're so happy about Diwali. <laughs> I was so happy to see what joy Diwali was bringing to everybody in the whole city. Um, so what was amazing was that the city began to speak with one voice in support of the Diwali holiday. And the entire city council of New York City, they followed by passing a resolution saying we support Raj Kumar's bill to make Diwali a holiday. Uh, we saw uh, leaders from all across the city and state come out like a domino effect um, in favor of the Diwali holiday. And um, I have to thank uh, the leader of my own legislative body, uh, Speaker Carl Heasty, who uh, have worked with me to make sure that this is this is possible. Um, so it really was a remarkable experience to see yeah. something that was impossible mm. become possible um, and to see Diwali become an American holiday and one that is so popular. Uh, so get ready. Diwali celebrations <laughs> this year in New York City are going to be off the chain. They're going to be yeah. something <laughs> that, that has never been seen. Oh, amazing. <laughs> Okay, Snigda, um, so could you kind of impart advice to all those in the audience on how um, 
how best to tell their stories in a unique and authentic way. And even what, you know, juggernaut's vetting process is, could they all submit their own stories and, you know, and be writers for you? Okay, great questions. Okay, so the one thing I will say is, like, thank you for making the Molly Hall. <laughs> yes. Um, I have to say that Eric Adams not only went to the Molly stuff, he actually came to my community's Gujarati Samaj Hall. We're not Gujarati, we're Bengali. For Durga Puja. Yes. Wow. And a lot of the PR photos for Diwali were actually him at Durga Puja. Durga Puja. I just want to point that out. <laughs> um, but I, I love that he did that. And um, congratulations. That was really huge. Um, in terms of the two things, how do you tell your story more authentically? I was actually talking to somebody about this. They're like, wait, do you actually like being on panels? This was one of my head of BD. Um, and like, are you actually good at public speaking? <laughs> and um, I just want to point out that every single person on this panel, I have enjoyed so much listening to. And I think you guys have as well. And the only advice I have here is that so much about telling your story is about just telling a story, which is, I mean, this is my McKinsey days, situation, complication, resolution, which is like, what did you experience? How did you feel? And then what happened afterwards? And I think if you just view every single thing as a conversation, as you're sitting down with a friend, telling them about something that's happened, it just feels like you're right there. And I think that's the only advice I can give. And also just have lots of reps, like like Jennifer was saying, that tell lots of bad stories, like tell a bad joke, like do it in <laughs> no, like low risk environments, like tell your mom a joke and she'll be like, that wasn't funny and that's okay. <laughs> um, I think so much of public speaking, it's, I was on extempor, I was on an extemp team where all you had to do was talk about one question for seven minutes. And, uh, I just told one of my teammates that literally the way they trained us was by giving us really dumb, dumb topics and asking us to talk about it for seven minutes. And one of my topics, I still remember to this day was either firefighters or fire trucks. <laughs> I just had to talk about it for seven minutes. And it's like that scene where it's like just one minute, you have to talk about your mother for one minute, like just do this. <laughs> And um, that's my advice for telling your story. So be, be true to yourself. Think about your story. You have a story. Think about all the experiences you had. Think about all the challenges you had. Think about all the things that you, you want to tell people and share people so that they get to know you really quickly. Um, you already know about like my parents and my dad's like moving watching habits. How did that happen? In <laughs> so um, that's that. In terms of the juggernauts vetting process, we truly are inundated with so many pitches so if we don't respond to you, please don't take it personally. In terms of what we look for, we are actually moving more towards a full-time model where we have trusted freelance writers who are regular and full-time staff writers. And one of the reasons we're doing this is because the juggernaut style is so unique that once we train somebody up on it, it's actually really tough to train somebody up on it. We have mm. a specific formula. We always want to have South Asian sources. It's so typical to like be like, oh, where can I find a mental health expert? We exist in the community. You just have to search a little bit harder for these community sources. And so um, we would say that if you are thinking about writing an article about the South Asian community, going back to telling your own story, what's the tension? What's the situation? What's the complication? What's the future looking like? Those make the best stories. Um, Dr. Verma was just telling me that she read a story that we wrote about Kumon. People know about Kumon. <laughs> it, it, it elicits a lot of tension and anxiety, but it also, a lot of people loved it. And that's a really interesting tension to explore, that people in our community hated it, and people in our community also loved it. So how do you find those kind of points of tension? Um, so much about telling our stories is not just representation for representation's sake. So much of our stories is about finding the unexpected. The second story I'll leave you with 
is that um, recently, just this past week, a Sri Lankan Tamil baker was named the best baguette maker of Paris. Isn't that fascinating? Now you're going to ask yourself, how did he get there? Why is he better than all the French people? Why is he making baguettes? Like suddenly you're interested. And so try to find those moments in your life because you might think your story is obvious, but it's not. Oh, I love that. How uniquely and squarely resonates. I know, I love that one story too. The stickiness of that. You know, we all get it. Um, okay, and uh, Dr. Varma, so um, Surgeon General Vivek Murthy has talked about the epidemic of loneliness, um, especially in this you know, post-COVID world that we're living in. Um, how do you address this, and especially with those who um, are the elderly um, and living alone? Yes. So, um, you know, I was had the pleasure of talking to Dr. Murthy over the years um, on loneliness. He had written a book about it. So we were on a TV segment a few years ago. He was just flying back from the U.K., um, he was in between his two terms at the point when we had first met, and um, they had just appointed a minister of loneliness in the UK. And we were mm -hmm. talking about how amazing that is, that it's something that's recognized. And over the last several years, I've been doing a lot of study on it. Um, and it's a huge part of the practice when I'm working with patients or whether it's talking about it publicly. We know that um, loneliness increases our risk for mortality. Um, it, it doubles our fault uh, increases by two, by double um, risk of depression. It decreases our immune system, um, increases risk for cancer, for stroke, for heart disease. And um, an advisory just came out, and I was a part of the work that Dr. Bhuthi was doing in terms of getting the word out to the community, um, that really our life does depend on the um, strength of our connections. <laughs> and it's not, loneliness isn't, isn't just about the number of people that we have in our lives. It's about the quality of the connection. You know, we can be in a room full of people and still feel lonely because we don't feel heard. We don't feel seen. We don't feel validated. And so a big part of what I suggest to people is asking yourself, you know, when's the last time you went deep with somebody? So there are, of course, so much value in what I call social snacking or micro connections, which is, you know, you're walking your, your dog or you're seeing a barista or a bus driver or whomever you're crossing paths with. You're at work. Maybe you're working from home, but you only go into the office twice a week. You're at the elevator. Make the time. Build the time to have the social connections. Be intentional about when you are going to see people. Ask them how they're going, how they're doing. Follow up on things. If they had shared with you, somebody had passed in my family, ask them, how are you doing? How are you feeling? Be vulnerable. I think so much of what we're missing are the meaningful connections where we go deep in what we call this idea of emotional attunement and emotional responsiveness, where we are actually listening. Active listeners, on average, live people who have active listeners in their life, they live four years longer. Um, there's wow. less risk of dementia in their lives because they have people who are invested in their outcomes. And so the idea of social support across the board, whether it's post-traumatic stress disorder, anxiety, depression, recovering from surgery, from having a, a biopsy and the recovery in skin healing and immune system, there's just so much value in social connection. So I would say like prioritize that. And I always give people like what I call the four M's of mental health. And it's something that I had to come up with in being able to communicate in 59 seconds how to improve your mental health. It was um, April 2020. And I got a call that Global Citizen is having this national, you know, international program and everybody will be on it. Elton John and I don't know, Priyanka Chopra and Oprah and all these fabulous people. 
And I was like, so why do you need me on the show? And um, they're like, well, we want mental health. We want something. What can you share? And I was like, okay, great. I'm thinking I've got a lot of time. And they're like, no, you have 59 seconds. (laughs) (laughs) And we want you to inspire. We want you to provide hope. We want you to provide education. (laughs) We want you to tell everybody across the world. And this was like, you know, I don't know. um, uh, Lady Gaga was hosting it with the three late night hosts on UN and WHO. And I was like, okay, again, why am I on the show? So I was like, what can I do? And I called my dad and, you know, he's a psychiatrist. And I was like, dad, I have uh, to share an important message. And um, he's like, great, do it. You're, you talk all the time on television and this would be no different. I was like, but there's only one problem. He's like, what? Like I have 59 seconds. And he said to me, he said, so you can save a life in one second. It doesn't take a lot of time. So I had to think of, okay, 20 years of education, how do I shrink it? So the four M's of mental health are meaningful connection, mindfulness, movement, and mastery. And so if there's something every day, dedicate yourself 10 or 15 minutes to improving, whether it's a language, a skill, a craft, but do it for nobody else but yourself, Mm -hmm. right? This is not about the professional experience because so much of why we're experiencing loneliness crisis is because we're prioritizing achievement and succeeding, which is all wonderful. It's something I've dedicated a lot, lot of, of my life to, but also being intentional about the connections and to the point where you are looking at your calendar and you're saying, when am I going to see someone and how am I going to spend time with them? So the mastery is doing something you're good at uh, just for your own sake. The meaningful connection is that emotional attunement and responsiveness to other people. The movement can be in any form, walking from the subway, you know, parking your car t- further away, taking the stairs, whatever it might be that allows you to be in your in your body and then the mindfulness i think that's such a gift that we were given if you do practice meditation or yoga even if you're washing your dishes but doing in a single-minded focus um so it all comes bound back to the connection to prioritize it but i just wanted to leave you with sort of four simple techniques that you can schedule into your day thank you So many gems of wisdom. I wish we had time for Q&A, but we sadly do not. But we are all going to be able to um, convene downstairs where you can meet the panelists. Another round of applause for them. Thank you all for tuning in. I'm so glad I got to repurpose this live event for my podcast listeners. As always, be sure to subscribe, rate, and review That's Total Mom Sense wherever you listen. You can write to me at thatstotalmomsense at gmail.com and follow me at Kanika Chedda Gupta where I post all the updates, especially the IRL events that I'm involved in. And you can visit my website, thatstotalmomsense.com for all things podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much for being in my tribe. Remember, always trust your mom sense and dad sense. Stay strong, super parents. I'll see you next time.